Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning uh, to Job, uh, chapter 38. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Uh, If you don't know where Job is in your Bible, you can probably open it up right in the middle. You'll find Psalms. Go to the left. You should find Job pretty quickly. Uh, I can make it easier for you. There's a pew Bible that's near you, and it will be on page 443. I'll even make it easier for you. It's printed for you in your bulletin, and you can follow along there. It might be easy to follow along there because we're going to be looking at a variety of passages uh, out of Job Job, uh, 38 through 42. Well, uh, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing with your time. For instance, you could uh, be at home trying to figure out if you have enough guts to listen to Olivia Rodrigo's new album because her album's name is Guts. Thanks. It was funny when I thought about it. Uh, maybe it will be if you think about it too. It might be funny as well. Anyway, uh, uh, you could also be at the Chatt- in Chattanooga for the Moon River Festival, or you could be over at the Tennessee Valley Fair riding rides. Uh, but you're not. You're here, and it is great to have you with us. I want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better for you to do with your time uh, than to worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the kindness in the beauty of his salvation. So I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name uh, to worship him so we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And we love to ride rides at the fair. We love to listen to music. But what we really love to do is gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind one another of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and then we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. The people are trying to, how to learn, trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that this morning, we're beginning a new series that we've entitled Questions God Asks. Uh, Questions God Asks. And I think that this is an important um, series for us because uh, C.S. Lewis uh, had said that the ancient man approaches God as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles have been reversed. We see ourselves as the judge 
and God is the one who must answer to us. And so uh, the testimony of the Bible is a testimony that, that God does welcome our questions. He loves our questions. But it is also a testimony that he might have some questions for us, right? And so with that in mind, let's look at uh, Job chapter 38. Uh, we'll look at 40 and then at 42. Uh, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Uh, chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down on the wicked where they stand. Uh, chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you are a God who is not hidden or silent, but you are a God uh, who delights to make yourself known. You'd love to reveal yourself to us. And you have done this in your word uh, and by your spirit. And ultimately, you've made yourself known to us in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now that uh, over these next few moments as we attend unto your word, that you in your mercy and in your kindness would attend unto us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it seems to me that we all have questions uh, for God. Uh, and even when you read through the Bible, one of the things that you see is that God's people are constantly crying out to him with their questions, with their deepest, with their most intense questions. And so you can think about Psalm 42. Uh, why have you forgotten me? Uh, you can think about Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long? 
right? How long, O oh Lord? As your pastor, I, I have met with many of you, and what I know is that these are your questions. And they're not just your questions, they are my questions as well. And one of the things that I'm really thankful for about the Bible is that the Bible records our questions. And in doing so, what the Bible is doing, it is reminding us that God knows our hurts and God knows our hearts. And even if God doesn't answer our questions in the timely fashion that we wish he would, and even if God doesn't answer our questions in the ways we wish he would, and even if he doesn't answer our questions at all, by recording our questions in the Bible, he's being kind to show us and to reiterate to us that he has heard us. There's some questions we ask, though, that we ask purely out of our own arrogance. And so you've probably experienced this in your own soul where you've said something like, well, when I get to heaven, I got a few questions for the big guy, right? And before I enter into those gates, he better answer me if he wants me to be in there. Uh, but here's the reality. Uh, when we stand before God, I'm not sure we'll stand uh, with a mouthful of questions. I think when we stand before God, we will stand before him in awe and in silence and in wonder. And maybe as we stand there, we won't be demanding answers, but we might be longing for more of his grace, longing for more of his mercy, and longing for more of him. And my hope in this series isn't to silence our questions because I think our questions matter. My hope is that God's questions to us will actually begin to reorient our questions. That God's questions will reorient our questions. And I think we should think about it in this way. I think it is easy for us to question people when they're not around. It is easy for us to talk about people when they're not in the room and to say, I wonder why they did this or that, or I can't believe they did this or that, or man, I wish they would tell me why they did this or that. But as soon as they enter into the room, we can no longer talk about them. We can no longer question them apart from them. We actually must begin to deal with them. And I think that that's what God's questions do for us. They are inviting us to deal with him, to deal with him as he is. Not to deal with our assumptions about him, not to deal with our projections of him, but to actually deal with him. And when we deal with a real person, uh, we then have the opportunity to really be changed by that person for the rest of our lives. And maybe their questions to us, maybe their answers to us will change us. About 27 years ago, I called up Jennifer, my wife, and I asked if we could get together because I had a question for her. And so I drove to her house, I picked her up in my Dodge Daytona, and uh, we went to go sit on a dock by Lake Hartwell. And I said to her, I said, Jennifer, you know, uh, I know that we've had this complicated relationship for these last uh, four or five years, and I know that I've hurt you, and I know that you've hurt me, and I know that yesterday I was dating somebody, and I know that today you're dating somebody, uh, but will you marry me, right? And, uh, and uh, that's a question that has to get answered, right? And, uh, and the answer that someone gives to that question is going to change your life, is going to change generations to come. And that's what God's questions do to us. They are an invitation to us to come near to him and to be changed by him. 
And so this morning, I want us to think about two things when we think about God's questions. And the first is that God's questions challenge us, right? God's questions challenge us. And the second thing I want us to note is that God's questions reveal himself to us, right? His questions challenge us, and then they reveal himself to us. So they challenge and they reveal. They challenge and they reveal. We'll begin with the challenge, then we'll go to the revelation. So first, the challenge. Listen again to God's question in chapter 38, verse 2. And then again in chapter 40, verse 7. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Now, this is a complicated verse. And it's easy to read this verse uh, purely, merely as a confrontation. It's easy to read this verse as if God is sort of throwing the gloves off and saying, Who do you think you are? barging in here with questions for me. You need to shut up and you need to listen. You need to shut up and you need to give me answers. And I think that's the way many people read this verse and they receive it. And we receive it in this way because that's how we think about God. That God is just in heaven. He's just up there somewhere saying, shut up and answer me. But I think there's something much more profound that's going on in this text. So when God says, dress like a man and answer me, I don't think he's saying, let's get ready to rumble. What he's saying is this. He's saying, Job, if you want to enter into the depths of my plans for you, if you want to enter into my secret will, if you want to try to begin to understand my providence, if you want to understand sickness, sorrow, pain, and death, then you're going to have to grow up. Because this is a topic that is not for children. And so if you really want to come and question me, then you're going to need to be ready for a mature response. And I think that this is really important for us because to understand this interaction, we need to understand uh, the depths uh, of suffering that Job is going through. I think many of you know that Job has been suffering, and in the midst of that suffering, it's important to note that it's not Job going to God, but it's God coming to Job. And I think that this is important because most of our questions about God come in the midst of our suffering. Most of our questions about God come in the midst of our suffering. And what this text is showing us is that if you want to hear God's response, then you will need to endure the suffering in order to hear him. If you want to hear his response, you will need to endure the suffering to hear him. You might remember uh, all the way back in chapter 1 of Job, Job's described as a godly man. Job is described as one who is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was a godly man, a religious man, one who was loved by God. But he was also rich. Like, really rich. I mean, 700 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and lots and lots of servants. I don't know what that would be like in galleons or, you know, in rubles or in dollars today, but it's a lot. Uh, In fact, in chapter 1 of Job, it says that Job was one of the greatest of all the people of the East. He's one of the greatest men on the face of the earth before the face of God. And not only that, he's a family man. He has seven sons and three daughters. 
And so in many ways, when we look at Job, like he's what many of us really want to be. He's a lovely family. He's godly and loaded, right? Uh, has a house at Blackberry Farm, you know, another place down at 30A. And uh, I think this is really important for us uh, to understand that Job's suffering did not come to him because he had done something wrong. And Job's suffering didn't come to him because God was angry at him. Job's suffering actually came to him because he was righteous and because he was loved by God. His suffering came to him because he was loved and admired by God. You might remember uh, the way the story begins, and uh, not, not the beginning beginning, but, uh, but Job. And at the beginning of Job, Satan has been searching the earth, presumably looking for someone to accuse. And when he comes before God, God says, have you considered my servant Job? Like, he loves me. And that's what began Job's suffering. Right? Satan was trying to prove that Job only served God for the blessings that God had given him. And God was saying, no, Job serves me because he loves me. And it's that argument between God and Satan that set off all the suffering. So Job lost all his oxen. He lost all his sheep, all his donkeys, all his camels, all his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his loved ones. And then he lost his health. And the text describes it in like disgusting imagery of him sitting in ash. And he has sores from his feet to his head and he's scraping the sores with shards of pottery. And when we begin to suffer in these ways, uh, this is when it is easy for many of us to just quit on God. It's in the midst of suffering that many of us quit. And we begin to blame him for everything and to think that God is either good, but he isn't powerful, right? Because if these bad things happen, that he wouldn't be powerful. And if he was good, he wouldn't let them happen. Or he's powerful, but he's not good. Or we're tempted to think about ourselves and to think that God is then punishing us because God is somehow disappointed with us. But what the story of Job is teaching us is that through our suffering, what God is trying to do is prove us to be his servants. That through our suffering, God is proving us to be his suffering. That God is actually putting us on display before Satan and before the world to prove that we are his servants. To prove that we serve God, not for his blessings, but we serve him because we love him. But not only that, uh, God then begins to question us. And as we see these questions, what we're seeing is that he then is showing up in the midst of the suffering. He doesn't leave us to the suffering. Like he shows up in the midst of it. Notice where we find God in these passages. In 38.1, again later in chapter 40, he's in the whirlwind. He is in the storm. And isn't that how our suffering often feels? It feels like a whirlwind. In the midst of our suffering, does it not feel like the world is spinning out of control and there's nothing you can do to stop it? 
There's nothing that you can do to stop the tears. There's nowhere you can go to find rest. There's nowhere to go to find relief. And it's out of that whirlwind, it's out of that storm that God begins to speak. And this is huge because for 37 chapters, there have been questions about why is all this happening. And for 37 chapters, we don't hear from the voice of God. And then in chapter 38, he begins to speak. And when he speaks, he's speaking out of this whirlwind. This God who had seemed silent, he finally speaks out of the storm. And here's the point. If you give up on God in the midst of your suffering, you will probably never hear his voice. If you give up on God in the midst of your suffering, you will probably never hear his voice. I think many of you probably remember the beautiful article written by Nightbird a couple years ago. Nightbird was this rising musician who's now passed through her suffering and gone into glory. But in the middle of her battle with cancer, she wrote these words. And she said, I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I'm God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I have called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout on the bathroom floor. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony on the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I am not so sick, I sometimes go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. 
If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. I think many of us, at some point in our lives, find ourselves on the bathroom floor. It's where Job uh, finds himself. And of course, even there on the floor, we all have our questions. Uh, and the question, and to the questions we're asking, there are often very few easy answers. There's only the adult medicine. There is God saying, I will question you. I want you to think about it. Job, uh, you know, has come to God and he's asking fairly reasonable questions in my mind. Do you care? Are you powerful? Do you love me? Are you good? Have you abandoned me? Is, is this suffering really just? And all these questions, they, they make sense. And into those questions, God then comes and he says, uh, poor Job, my son, you don't understand what you're asking. And your suffering has begun to blind you. So let me ask you a few questions. And then he offers a litany of questions that run through 38 and 39 and into 40 and 41. And, and so in 38, 40, uh, 38, 4 and 5, he says this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Or look at 3812. Have, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Or 3816. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Or 3819. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? For you know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Think about 38, 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Or 38, 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Or verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Or verse 39, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens? Or 39, 19, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Or 39, verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wing toward the south? Chapter 40, verse 41, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And all these questions, they're, they're sort of like God saying to Job, hey, why don't you come over and let's watch some planet Earth together? And we will go around the world. And do you really understand the world in which you live? H have you swam at the bottom of the ocean? Do you know where the storehouse of rain and snow reside? Are you able to scatter the lightning? Do you feed the lions or give strength to the horse? Are you the one who taught the birds how to fly? Are you the one who placed the stars in the heavens? Have you been to the end of the cosmos and back? 
How big is it? When did it begin? And all these questions, on one level, they serve to silence us, right, before God. You see it in chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, again, the point of this is not, uh, you know, sort of shut up and deal with it. Or take your vegetables and be thankful. Uh, The point is that God is saying... I know that the world is a crazy place. And I know that terrible things have happened. And I know that life is confusing and frustrating. And I know that you think I'm absent. And I know that you think that I've lost control. And I know that you think I don't care for you. But look at me. I am right here in the whirlwind. I am right here with you. So keep your eyes on me. And this is why it's important that he says, dress for action like a man, because the severe comfort that God gives us is not answers, but is himself. And what he is saying to us, this severe comfort is, I want you to look through the suffering and I want you to see me. It's sort of like being at the Tilt-A-Whirl at Dollywood uh, Country Fair as you kind of get into that thing and they lock you in and it begins to spin and you feel out of control and then the floor drops out from you. And then all you have to do, like you have to focus your eyes on a particular point and they've got to stay there. And you can't be distracted by what's happening to the person next to you and the mess that he's making. You, you cannot be distracted by everything that's going around. You can't turn your head. You can't turn your shoulders. Because if you do, your day is over, right? And there's a mess to clean up. And, and that's what God is saying. He's saying, in the midst of the whirlwind, you must fix your eyes on me. And I think this is really important Because when life doesn't work out the way we thought it would, or when following Jesus is no longer any fun, or when all those blessings that at one point were raining down seem to have dried up, I think that's when many of us are tempted to quit. Is when many of us are tempted to turn away from God. And so from within that whirlwind, God is saying, look at me. And then from that whirlwind, he comes to us and he begins to question us. And he questions us as if to say, look, I hear your cries. Keep focused on me. And here's the reality. Uh, It seems to me that knowing why things are happening rarely eases the suffering. Knowing why rarely eases the suffering. Because what we really want to know is that there's someone who can make it stop. What we really want is for someone to lift it off. What we really want is someone to be with us in the midst of it. What we really want is someone to draw near and say, it's going to be okay. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, I know you want answers, but I'm your answer. I was rereading this week, I was rereading the Heidelberg Catechism And I got to question 26, and I was sort of blown away 
once again. Listen to what it says. It says, I trust God so much that I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. And I read that and I just thought, help my unbelief, right? They held my unbelief. Because this is our confession. We live in a sad world. And we do not always understand why. But we can trust him. Because he is good and he is powerful. And that's what God's questions are doing. He's trying to reveal himself to us so that we might trust in him and serve him come what may. I want you to think again about chapter 38, verse 1, and chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Again, I think this is amazing. God is speaking from within the storm, and essentially, he's asking this very important question. All those questions are basically one question. What do you really believe about me? In the midst of the storms, what do you really believe about me? And so Job says in verse 5 of chapter 40, I heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I've heard of you in the preaching. I've heard of you when I've read. But now I see you. Now I see you in the midst of all this suffering. You are there. And what does he see? But he sees God in the midst of the whirlwind. And what does he see but a God who's not impacted by the storm? And then think about all these questions that are being asked. And and God says, did you create the world? The answer is no. Right? Because I did. Did you send the lightning? No. Because that's what I do. Did you set the constellations in the night sky? Like, no, that's what I do. That's what God is saying. And not just questions of creational power, but also uh, he's revealing his knowledge. He says, did you teach the birds to fly? Like, I did that. He he says, do you know where the snow and the hail are stored? I know that. Do you summon the sun for the day and the moon for the night? No. But that's what I do. And I think that these questions are incredibly kind because what he's saying is this, Job, he's saying, I know that you think that I have lost control. I know you think I've lost control, but I haven't. I am still here in the midst of the storm and look at me. And I'm still good. Think again about his questions. Do you send the rain that refreshes and gives life to the earth? I do. He says, do you feed the lions and do you satisfy her cubs? That's what I do. And what he's saying through these questions, he's saying, look, like, I care for the creation. I feed the lion. I feed the cubs. I care for them. Why would I not care for you? In the New Testament, Jesus also speaks to our fears in a very similar way. And he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. 
how much more value you are than the birds. And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? And this is just a classic example of a how much more statement, right? If God would feed the lion, if God would feed the raven, if God would give life to the lily, if God would clothe the grass, how much more would he take care of you? How much more might he serve you? And here's what I hope you're beginning to see is that God's questions are not meant to sort of push us away. God's questions are meant to draw us near so so that we might begin to learn to trust him and to serve him, come what may. As you look back on the whole book of Job, the main point of the book of Job is that God defeated Satan through the suffering of his servant. That's the point of the book of Job. That God defeated Satan through the suffering of his servant. And though his servant suffered, his servant remained faithful. And though his servant suffered, God never forgot him. And though his servant suffered and was brought low, in time he was lifted up. And all of this points, I think, to the God that Job saw in the midst of the whirlwind. Who did he see? What did he see? He saw Jesus, who's the true suffering servant. He saw Jesus, the one who was truly innocent in ways none of us are. He was the one who was truly cut off from God and experienced God's wrath so that we would never be cut off from God and experience his wrath. He was the one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. We learned that he committed no sin and neither was deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And what I hope you're beginning to see is that Jesus is the greater Job. He's the one who suffered in ways far greater than Job ever suffered. Job was not purely innocent. Job had never been abandoned by God. Job was not experiencing God's wrath. But our Savior Jesus, right, the suffering servant, through his, ser- through his suffering, defeated sin and death uh, and defeated the evil one, the one who attacks us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all rain down upon him in order that we might have life. And that's the point of the table, that through the suffering of Jesus, evil was defeated. 
And through the suffering of Jesus, all of our sins have been forgiven. And through the suffering of Jesus, though he was cut off, he was cut off so that we might be welcomed in. And what I hope you're seeing is that that when God is asking his questions, he's asking these questions in order to help us see who he truly is. That he is the suffering servant who has suffered in every way that we have. And yet he never gave up on God. He's the one who suffered in every way that we have, and he did so in our place. And he is the one through his suffering who's defeated the devil himself. And so at this table, what he's saying is, I want you to come to me. And I want you to come to me with all of your suffering because I too have suffered. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be lonely. I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to weep. I know what it's like to be rejected. And I know what it's like to die. And so fix your eyes on me and I am the one who will lead you through suffering and into my glory where you might enjoy God's blessings forevermore. And so he says, come to my table and let me serve you because I love my servants and I love to serve those whom I love.